Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Right. You could be hanging out with the fucking hippies, Uh uh bunch of fucking losers, (laughs) just hanging out, being a bunch of fucking dickheads. You're going to hang out with the cool kids. Yeah. You're going to be hanging out in New York City. You're going to be going, they're hanging out in cafes, they're doing heroin. What? what? Okay. (laughs) All right. What about, you're talking about the Velvet Underground. <laughs> what about the squares? Okay. All right. I'm going to align myself with the squares. Okay. All right. Those are my kind of people. The people who never get asked out on the weekend. <laughs> the, the people whose phone never rings. Yeah. Yeah. You okay. Know? You can align with the squares. Yeah. That, that's, that's fine. That's okay. You can go to all the Young Rascals concerts you want to. It's just so easy to get dressed in the morning. <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And welcome to part three of the Velvet Underground. So when we last left the Velvet Underground, the Velvets were playing a residency at the famed Café Bazaar in the West Village of Manhattan. But the Velvets were impressing neither the folk tourist patrons nor the management, partly due to their insistence that they be allowed to play their more, let's say, abrasive songs. (laughs) Yes, because, I mean, just picture a family of Italian tourists (laughs) sitting at a table, drinking coffee and writing postcards while a gaunt and pale 24-year-old just sings about his nihilistic views on heroin. (laughs) Yeah, and they're showing up expecting to see Peter, Paul, and Mary. (laughs) Their toddler's like, so this is freedom, huh? I imagine an Italian toddler in the 60s can speak English perfectly and smoke a cigarette at the same time. Yeah, and has concepts like freedom and of expression and so on and so forth. And the They're critique very... of, of avant-garde art. Yes, of course. They're Italian. <laughs> Their children drink wine, you know. <laughs> Now, this was somewhat of a transitory time for the Velvet Underground because they were still inching their way into a proper rock and roll career, playing paying gigs at clubs, bars and schools. But if you'll remember, the Velvet Underground's early performances before Cafe Bazaar and even before the high school gig usually involved underground filmmakers in one way or another. And as such, their friend Barbara Rubin was interested in filming the Velvet Underground during their new residency. Now, Barbara knew John Cale specifically because she'd shot her most well-known film, Christmas on Earth, in John's apartment on Ludlow Street, back when she was still using the original title of the film, Cox and Cunts. <laughs> that was the working title <laughs> to Christmas on Earth. <laughs> like, like that movie, Peaks and Pussies. <laughs> but, you know, later renamed The Sound of Music. <laughs> That one. It's New York, man. You want, you're telling me you don't want to fucking hang out here. <laughs> I do. I, I do. So when Barbara Rubin asked the Velvets if they'd be interested in appearing in a film of hers, they agreed to the proposal. In advance of filming, though, Barbara Rubin asked a friend of hers to come to a Velvet Underground show at Cafe Bazaar to take some pictures. For reference, of course. Mm. That friend was poet and photographer 
Gerard Malanga, who had the odd affectation of taking a bullwhip with him wherever he went, just in case he wanted to dance. Because for some reason, the whip was just fucking essential to Gerard Malanga's dancing. Yeah, I think he called it, at first he thought it was more a decorative thing, and mm-hmm. then later I guess he easily found a use for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, these people are playing with S&M at this point in time. You know, they're playing with also, they're trying to play with, it's you know, performative what, S&M, yeah, right? what the squares are going to be freaked out by, man. <laughs> I'm going to be walking around with the whip. You never know when I'm going to have to fucking lick an ass. Joke's on them. That's all we do. <laughs> but while Gerard Malanga had the knowledge to take pictures for Barbara, he knew nothing about lighting. So to run the light meter, Gerard invited a friend named Paul Morrissey, who just happened to also be the right-hand man of famed pop artist Andy Warhol. And doing this favor for their friend Barbara, Gerard and Paul ended up changing the course of music history. So once Malanga, Ruben, and Morrissey got to the Velvet Underground show at Café Bazaar, Gerard spent very little time taking pictures. Instead, he unfurled his bullwhip, asked a girl in the front row to dance, and while the Velvets played Venus and Furs, he performed a reptilian whip dance. <laughs> Mostly, but not completely holding the whip as a prop. And while he's dancing, he's telling the girl, you know, I brought this just in case. <laughs> <laughs> this is my whip. I I brought it myself. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh. I got it at an umbrella shop in the West 40s. Oh, yeah, okay. Thank you. <laughs> now, the Velvets thought that Gerard's dancing was fantastic, especially because, I mean, most audience members, when they went and saw a Velvet Underground show at Cafe Bazaar, they, according to one person, they left... The performances dazed and damaged was their words, and that's not in a good way. As a result, the Velvet sold Gerard after the show, you can come dance for us anytime you want, bud. And as it turned out, that would be far from the last time Gerard would dance with the Velvets, because the next morning, he and Paul Morrissey brought what they'd seen of the Velvets directly to Andy Warhol. Yes, Andy Warhol, the pop icon. Yeah. Yes, and soon to be rock band manager. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say yes. And then yeah. you, you could put that on your business card. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So as I said in the last episode, Andy Warhol, he got his start in New York City back when he was 22 years old as a commercial illustrator, like, you know, drawing shoes for lady footwear and magazines and newspaper ads. Uh, he also designed window displays for department stores. And, and he was really successful at it. He made a lot of money doing that. He could even afford to buy a townhouse for himself and his elderly mother. That's nice. Yeah, and this is like, nice. he's getting a start, what, in the, when in the 50s, like mid 50s, late 50s? He, pretty much throughout all the 50s he's working in this. Okay. So everything's going great because he's making pretty good money, but it wasn't really exactly what he wanted because what he wanted most of all, I mean, sure, a boatload of money, that's fantastic, <laughs> but he wanted to also be accepted in the fine art world. Ah. So, and this is about a few years before meeting the Velvet Underground. So this is about 61, 62. He's going through this period of restlessness. You know, he's complaining to his friends. He's like saying like, everyone else around me seems to be doing great. Everyone just is doing so much better. Like Jasper <laughs> Johns over there and Bob Rauschenberg, they're killing it in their galleries and, and magazines are writing about them. And, and those guys won't even take my calls or hang out with me. It's true. They just didn't want to hang out with him. Oh, well, he was, <laughs> he was kind of a weirdo, but he, hey. <laughs> 
<laughs> he was a hard hang. He was not an easy hang at all. At first. At first, that's fair. At first. And and so Andy Warhol, he would complain to his friends about this. He's like, I'm showing my work in galleries, too, but like nothing seems to be making an impact. No one really cares for my drawings of young men kissing or the book of different people's feet. <laughs> You know, shoot or unshoot? <laughs> unshoot, of okay. course. Right. Those are otherwise those are shoes. <laughs> no, the True foot's enough. inside it. <laughs> yes, okay. That's uh, why it's uh, art. Very nice. It's, it's a it's a bit of like the little prince. It's like you know th- that's a snake, and but no, it's not a hat. Okay, I, I can't get into this. Yeah, I get yeah. into this. <laughs> but yes, Andy Warhol tried everything. He even tried urinating on a canvas. <laughs> And anyone, Everyone tried urinating on a canvas. I know. It's like, <laughs> and then they just feel stupid and there's pee everywhere. <laughs> okay, so it was at this point where, according to legend, one of Andy's friends said, okay, I had enough of this complaining. <laughs> I have a new idea, but it will cost you $50. So Andy's like, all right, hand me my wallet. Let's go. Tell me what your great idea is. And his friend said, okay, you should paint something that everybody sees every day something that everyone can recognize like a like like a can of soup can of soup <gasps> he's like yes i can get into that he's like yelling at his mother he's like ma get me some soup ma <laughs> no the camels i don't know the one i like you know he's just, <laughs> you know which one i like <laughs> yeah. you know which one i like fine all of them just get me all 32 mom i don't like progresso i like campbell's so chunky especially <laughs> so you know we know eventually he does create the campbell soup collection be- yeah. becomes an iconic image we've all been to college we've seen the poster yes exactly yeah. so andy's career <laughs> takes off at that point which led to uh, making celebrity portraits like marilyn monroe and elvis presley you know using his uh, silk screening technique and and then later he buys himself a camera a video camera and starts making underground films with his friends. This is like the best summer camp ever. <laughs> you know? He starts making movies like Harlot, Empire, Lupe, uh, one called Sleep, Eat, Drink. I mean, those are three different ones. One's called Sleep, which is a man sleeping, uh-huh. and one's called Eat, you can imagine, mm-hmm. and Drink, you can imagine as well. It's yeah, this guy yeah. drinking until he yeah. gets trashed and he like passes out. And there's also Blowjob, which is a guy getting a blowjob, but only the face of yes. a guy getting a blowjob. Yes. It's like the part in the porno that no one wants to see. <laughs> like when they suddenly go to the fucking guy's face, the close-up on that of him going, uh, yeah, no one wants to fucking, it's almost as bad as like the behind the ball shot. Maybe Andy Warhol wants to see that. <laughs> Maybe he does. Because that is the whole movie (laughs) and that's what Andy but Andy Warhol like he that's what he enjoyed about this even throughout different mediums you know because it wasn't just about the painting it was about being creative in whatever you want and making it yours Mm -hmm. yes I'm even including blowjob on that (laughs) yeah of course and also the fact that painting was getting old again like you know people had been doing it for thousands of years this whole experimental film stuff now that's new and so is this Rock and roll business that we're about to get into. <laughs> yeah, rock and roll is only about 10 years old at this point. Absolutely. So when Gerard Malanga and Barbara Rubin told Andy about this band, the Velvet Underground, Andy had to go see for himself. Mm-hmm. So the next night, Andy is at the Cafe Bazaar watching these people being... They're just very different people, okay? <laughs> yeah. Being very different, being very creative on stage, right? There's the, the cool, long-haired guitarist, and then there's the handsome European guy wearing like a rhinestone choker with a Richard III haircut, <laughs> playing, playing the electric viola, and then there's the androgynous young woman on the drums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 
of course, the shy but cute Jewish Long Island kid named Lou. Yeah, so these people are different, and they're in a band together. Yeah. But most importantly, their sound was different. Not like anything Andy had ever heard before. So Andy came up to them, and he made a what you call a quiet fuss over them, <laughs> saying, you guys are really great. You're you guys great. are wonderful, really you're, wonderful. You're really great. I, wow, this is, I just don't, I've never seen anything. Wow, you're really great. You keep doing walking. You keep doing Christopher walking. Walking, no, walking's more forceful, and Andy Warhol is a little more Brit, like, walking, that's, you know, it's like, eh, you know, it's more, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's much more forceful, but with, with Andy Warhol, it's like, wow. You guys are great. <laughs> and there's <laughs> also a little bit of a breath afterwards. And that, that's the, the thing about Andy Warhol. Is Andy Warhol, especially in you know fictional representations of him, uh, he's always portrayed as this alien fucking weirdo that nobody can talk to. And it never says anything. It's like that fucking, the, the, his portrayal, Crispin Glover in The Doors. Right. It's like, I painted this telephone gold. I know. You can use it to, to talk to God. But I don't have anything to say. You know, it's that <laughs> fucking awful shit. Yeah, yeah, none of that's true. No, Andy Warhol was a human being. He was just a regular dude. Well, and he so- wasn't just a regular dude, but he was still a person. No, yeah. I think he was a dude. He was totally a dude, but he also liked to play with the press. He liked to play with his persona. Like, uh, he made it seem that there wasn't much there when there really was deep inside. That's uh, that's the way I see it. Oh, no, there were depths to Andy Warhol, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Now, when Andy Warhol showed up to see the Velvet Underground, the band was batting around the idea of trying their luck in England because John Cale, remember the electric viola player, he'd recently taken a trip to the UK and he'd shopped around the Velvet's Ludlow Street demo to no small interest. Hmm. And really, this wasn't the worst idea because, as Sterling Morrison put it, they couldn't make any less money in the UK. And, you know, really, I mean, even Jimi Hendrix, who is now one of the most popular musicians in the entire world, he couldn't get a fucking record out in the United States. He went to the UK instead and then put together the Jimi Hendrix experience there and had three number one hits in the UK before anyone in the US even fucking heard of him. And a wonderful twist of fate, though. Just before Andy came to see the Velvets that night at Cafe Bazaar, he'd been approached by a producer who'd taken over a film studio in Queens. Queens, baby! Queens! The producer's idea was to turn this 1,700-square-foot space into a discotheque called Murray the K's World, named, of course, after the legendary rock DJ. As far as what this guy wanted from Andy... The promoter figured that if they had Andy's people acting as mascots for the disco, <laughs> hanging out there every night, making films, being a bunch of fucking weirdos. Just like showing up and hanging out. Yeah. He figured it would drum up some good publicity. And it would have. You know, people, Andy Warhol was covered in the press all the time. People, they either loved him or they loved to hate him. Yeah. Either way, you're going to get press. Yeah. No, he was very popular. Yeah. Now, as far as the big ideas went, Andy Warhol usually had that covered. But when it came to the details... He depended on the aforementioned Paul Morrissey. See, both Andy and Paul thought that the Queen's disco thing was a good idea, especially because they were going to get paid a good sum of money to just hang out in Queens. And back then in 1966, it was a much bigger deal to go from Manhattan to fucking Queens. But it was Paul's view that what this discotheque really needed was a house band. And just around the time that this idea was being kicked around, Paul saw the Velvet Underground at Cafe Bazaar. So after Andy saw the Velvets as well, the band was invited to come to Andy's home base, a place called The Factory, to discuss not only the possibility of the Velvets being the house band for the Queen's discotheque, 
but also the possibility of Andy Warhol managing the band. Now, at the time, Andy Warhol was not quite the untouchable idol that he's sometimes seen as now. In the mid-60s, for as many people who thought he was brilliant, there were also those who saw Andy Warhol as a charlatan who was trying to scam everyone with paintings of soup cans and Brillo boxes. The funny thing is, they're both right. (laughs) And that's why Andy Warhol's great. Yeah, we love him. We love him around here. Similarly, the Velvets also weren't getting much respect. And since Andy Warhol was a name who was well-respected by all the right people, everyone very coolly agreed, might be fun, sure, let's try it. (laughs) So the Velvets said yes and became the newest faces at Andy Warhol's factory. The factory! Yeah, the factory. Oh, this is a famous factory. Okay, so this one would be the first out of three, I think four, factories that Andy Warhol would have. Yeah, the factory. To me, it always seems like one of the most like fascinating and simultaneously boring places in the history of art. Oh, no, it is fascinating. I mean, in theory and in history. <laughs> and, and if you and I were to go there, we would last about an hour. Yeah, at most. But, but, but history-wise, it is amazing because the factory, it's basically Andy Warhol's office. It's where he works, but it's also a space for him to invite people over and to see his work and to hang out with him, do some work with him, or to meet other people with this diverse set of personalities and talents, just all kind of merging together, like people like artists, writers, uh, actors, drag queens, celebrities, hustlers, bohemians, uh, socialites, bohemian socialites, (laughs) homosexuals, (laughs) and of course, speed freaks. Uh what do you mean? I think you should have said Speed Freaks first. Actually, the Speed Freaks can go for all of them. <laughs> yes. Because most of the people there were on drugs. Yeah. Particularly amphetamine. Yes. That was their favorite one. <laughs> so, so this is like a really hip clubhouse sprinkled with drugs. And Andy was the ringleader who everyone wanted a piece of. Yeah. Like getting his attention was something that everyone like coveted. Everyone wanted to get to that point and everyone wanted to be cool. So... The Velvet Underground, the band, they go to Midtown Manhattan, the factory on East 47th Street. They take the freight elevator up to the fourth floor and they walk into this giant explosion of just silver, silver, (laughs) silver. It's all silver everywhere. Silver on the walls, the ceiling, the columns, the bathroom stall, the payphone, all done with a little bit of spray paint and hundreds and hundreds of rolls of aluminum foil. Wow. It's foil. That's all it is. Just like from the top to the bottom. No wrinkles either. That's what they said. <laughs> <laughs> I looked it up. Wow. No, it was it was impressive. <laughs> that's an impressive use of, that's an impressive <laughs> afternoon for someone. Yeah, you would uh, you and I would walk in there, we'd be like, Wow, so how'd you get the wrinkles out? Really? Edie, you you forgot to smooth out that corner. <laughs> no, it's important. <laughs> you need to go over there and do take care of that. Get Billy to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's accurate. <laughs> okay, so so there's rows also, there, of course, since it's a workspace, there's rows of Warhol's paintings and the, his silk screen uh, work area and a stereo that's playing opera music really, really <laughs> loudly. And so, and also the Warhol factory superstars, you know, who are all there. Everyone's doing something like Billy Name, who's adding extra coats of silver. Billy, <laughs> he's adding extra, you know, coats of silver on everything. I'm doing it wrong, too. God, it's always, it happens. Billy. Anyway, so, <laughs> that's not how 
he shouts. <laughs> and so, and there's Andine who's supplying everyone with drugs. Okay. And then there's Gerard Malanga. He's making silk screens uh, for Andy's art and other fun characters like Bridget Polk, who likes to walk around topless with paint on her boobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they call her the tit paintings. And yeah. then, and then there's Ronnie Goudron over there. Well, he comes later, and Mary Warnov or Mary Might. Mary Warnov uh, also was the principal in Rock and Roll High School. Yes, yeah. and here she is a Cornell University student. <laughs> <laughs> and but also by far my favorite Andy Warhol factory member. I agree with that. Yeah. And then there's also others like Ingrid Superstar, Baby Jane, and oh, as I said, celebrities might drop by. Maybe mm. Mick Jagger's there or Dennis Hopper's hanging out. You know, people filming and making screen tests. And it was like an offbeat womb of creativity and art. Yeah. Right? And so the Velvet Underground, they're just wide-eyed and amazed. You know, John Cale's like, this is the most interesting place I've ever been. Mm -hmm. To which Sterling says, yes. He goes, it's Fascinating. <laughs> Fascinating. Fascinating. And Mo, Fascinating. Mo Tucker, the drummer, she's completely bewildered. With a, like, cause she, she's a 19-year-old girl, never really been anywhere outside of her suburban area, and she's just like, what is this place? <laughs> well, Mo Tucker is, uh, she's very, uh, she's conservative, and always yes. has been. Yes. Always has been a conservative person. She kind of kept all of this, like, Andy Warhol weirdness at arm's length the entire time. It's like, I, I, I would imagine the the phrase that came out of her mouth most was, that's nice. Yeah. A lot of it's like, you do what you want to do, and yeah. I'm going to just do what I want to do. And I think they respected each other very much because of that. Yeah. I think they respected what she wanted to do and or what she didn't want to do, which yeah. is a lot of what they were doing. Yeah, it was fine. They, they weren't like fucking serpents in the garden. They weren't trying to no. tempt her or anything like that. I was like, okay, great. Wow. That makes <laughs> you even more fun. You're just standing there. Just stand there. And Lou Reed, though, he was in heaven. Yeah. This was paradise for him because Andy Warhol had provided them with a perfect environment to work and to write. To, because before, remember, Lou would be making up these characters and stories for his songs or finding them in a book or something that he would read. But now Andy was supplying real life characters who were totally out there. Yeah. And, and he's also filling in with fucking speed constantly. Yes. And Lou would just <laughs> hear the most insane conversations and just write them down as quickly quickly as he could as he's going around the room. And Andy, he encouraged that kind of creativity. You know, yeah. he wasn't getting high on drugs or laying around feeling important. Andy worked day and night. Yes. He had a very strong work ethic and he, he expected everyone else to do the same. So Andy would ask Lou, so how many songs did you write today? And Lou would be like, today? Oh, uh, oh um, <clears throat> two? Uh, uh, ten. Yes, <laughs> I wrote ten today. And Andy would look at him and say, you should have written 20. Yeah. yeah. If you're not write. working, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Right. And as per, the, you know, their management agreement, uh, Andy paid for their amps and their new equipment. So he had them all like sent up to the factory just almost immediately. And then he'd go up to Lou and say, OK, time to get working. You see that pretty blonde girl over there? The one that's practically making out with John Cale? <laughs> That's, that's, that was fast. That's impressive. Okay. All right. That's Edie Sedgwick. She starred in several of my underground movies. She's been on the cover of Vogue. She's beautiful. She's rich. She's not without her problems. <laughs> but don't you think she's a femme fatale? Maybe you should write a song about that. And Lou got to work. He's like, good idea. I think you're way overselling how excited Andy Warhol was making the pitch to Lou Reed. Look at her. <laughs> 
Isn't she a vision? Yeah, I think it's just like, Lou, you should write a song about Edie. Yeah. Don't you think she's a a femme fatale? Yeah, exactly. That's that's the way I said it. Now that song about Edie ended up being, of course, femme fatale. It's one of the Velvet Underground's best songs. But it wasn't sung by Lou Reed. The person behind the mic on that track was a statuesque blonde from Germany with one of the most distinctive voices in rock music. Her name was Krista Pefkin, but most people knew her as Nico. Imagine it's 1967. You're sitting down and listening to this album for the first time. You have no fucking clue who this band is. You put it on. You listen to Sunday morning. Like, wow, that song's like, that song's really good. You listen. I'm waiting for the men. It's like, what men? That never heard anything like that before. And then it's Femme Fatale, yeah. track three. And you get to the end of it. You're like, what the hell was that? <laughs> who is Clown? What the fuck is a Clown? How can she say frown but not be able to say clown? <laughs> because <laughs> I. I can't explain <laughs> as, as best as I can. All right, we're gonna, we got to start at the beginning. Uh, that's Nico. That's Nico. <laughs> we always like to around the house, as yeah. we said in the last episode. We like to uh, pretend like she's like another roommate. Like, Nico, you left the porch lights on. Again. All right, Nico. You know they only pick up recycling on Tuesday. <laughs> Anyway, 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 anyway. So, Nico, actually, her birth name is Krista Pafkin, mm-hmm. a.k.a., of course, Nico, who was born in 1938 in Cologne, Germany, which at that time was right around the corner from World War II. Yeah. That devastating Nazi phase that the Germans put everyone through. That one. 38, they're already in it. They yes. are fucking deep in it by in that it. point. So Nico's childhood consisted of living in war-torn Germany, staying in the countryside of Lubinau, and then moving to Berlin with her mother when the war ended in 1945. Which obviously was no walk in the park, <laughs> since Berlin had been bombed to shreds. Yeah. It was in ruins. No, Berlin after World War II was a, a complete and I mean, it was hell. It yeah. was awful. Yeah, and half dangerous. The, half the population of Berlin had been killed in the war, and those left behind, mostly women and children, were left to survive in the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Nico and her mother included. Yep. Luckily, her mom was able to find work as a seamstress, and and she rented out a one-bedroom apartment while they got by by uh, uh, meager food rations and having electricity for four hours a day. Yeah. Uh, Luckily, they were in the American section, though. Some would say maybe not so lucky. Yeah, because I so. he's, you're not safe anywhere that is while true. you're going it's, through reconstruction. It's better than the Soviet section. 
Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess so. Considering how East Berlin and West Berlin went, yeah, it's the American section is better than the Soviet section here, definitely. Either way, it just sucks whatever you, situation, you're a toddler, it's bad. and you're trying to say, I'm not a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. so, and she had to spend the rest of her life going, I'm not a Nazi. Right, right. <laughs> Although she would also go on to say too many controversial things. <laughs> it's, it's a whole thing. Uh, uh, something about being emotionally stunted or something yeah, th- yeah. throughout maybe possibly because of this it's not an excuse but no. she is a complicated woman very complicated <laughs> woman yes fascinating woman yes but fascinating but not very complicated <laughs> and by the time that nico was 16 she was growing into a striking woman yeah. actually she was six feet tall slender beautiful face with big cheekbones and very unique looking. Yeah. That's a lot. Of, and you can see that from the photos. So she's, she's got a very beautiful face. And since she hated school and she couldn't be bothered to work a real job, she started modeling where she learned how to walk, how to pose, how to gain attention by just standing there, <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah. And she had this photographer friend who helped her get work, actually, to go to Paris to work for Elle magazine, which... Obviously, it's a big break for her because all she wanted to do was get out of that tiny apartment in Berlin and out into the world and just live a glamorous lifestyle, not just survive, but thrive. And to this is the number one thing to be somebody. She really needed to be somebody. And right before she left Germany, her photographer friend gave her her new name. He said, Krista Pafkin. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, that's no good. You need a one name name. Yeah. You are now Nico. Nico. Yes. It's great. It's perfect. It's catchy. It's cool. It's ambiguous. It's alluring. It's the name of the super hot guy that the photographer <laughs> was in love with. You know, so it was like, this is you. Now go out there. And she did great. You know, she she worked. She got lots of work as a cover girl. She dyed her hair blonde, her signature look of shoulder length blonde hair with bangs. She was glamorous and hobnobbing with the cosmopolitan crowd. That's how she met famed Italian director Federico Fellini. Mm-hmm. He was super Italian and famous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to say about him. I, I, it's I, Fellini. I mean, yeah. yeah, he's a legendary filmmaker. Absolutely. It's one of those that you have to say like, oh yeah, Fellini is great, but when's the last time you watched a Fellini movie? La Strada's good. Okay. That's as far as I'll go. All right. Because he cast her in a movie called La Dolce Vita. Uh, the which, Sweet Life. Which is a very, the, one of the most popular ones. It's a three-hour romp. <laughs> And and Nico's in it, mm-hmm. playing Nico. Yep. And so that, of course, led to some more acting opportunities because now she's gaining a lot of attention from this. But she didn't care for the long hours on set and waiting around for the crew to set up in the movies. You know, she'd get restless and had a terrible work ethic when she wasn't the center of attention. Yeah. That's the thing. All she wanted was to be the center of attention. But working for it was another thing, obviously. Yeah, Nico's work ethic was not the best. Not the best. Yeah. Although, I mean, it's hard because she's a very confusing person in some places. Sometimes I can't see her ambition. Sometimes I feel like she just kind of sabotages herself in her head. Like, what's the use? That is relatable. But it's so hard to see this drive as she's going in and out of things. Like, oh, acting, that's kind of (laughs) boring. So so what am I going to do? I get that, yeah. And so between modeling gigs, she was still like, but she was still trying to get into something creative. Like she still took acting classes uh, at the actor's studio. Although I think she, she said she was a member. I'm not sure. Well, Nico's she, also a fucking liar. She also, she said she studied under Lee Strasberg <laughs> and, and later met Elia Kazan. I do believe that she met Elia Kazan at one point who told her, whatever you do, you'll do it on your own time. That's terrible advice. And she's like, I'm going to be late for everything <laughs> forever. 
<laughs> which that, he was. Yeah, that she was. But that's fucking awful advice. I. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It kind of seemed to work for her. And, yeah. and, and you know what? That's great. Well, you know, so while she was working on that, she found out another thing. She was pregnant. Ah, yeah. Yes. She was 24 years old when she gave birth to a baby boy. And the father, he was a popular French actor named Alain Delon. I don't. I think that's how it. I think they rhyme together. Alain Delon. Maybe it's Alain Delon. Yeah, something like yeah. that. Uh, and but unfortunately, he broke Nico's heart when he simply said that he just didn't want anything to do with her or the baby at all. Yeah. And that really sucked for her. So there were a lot of times of tragedy for her, like you know, places where she was really stuck in a bad place. But she was also. Not fit to be a mother at all. No. At all. That poor kid was shuttled around from one place to another, going with Nico on modeling jobs, uh, and then staying with Nico's mom or Alain Delon's mom. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, uh, Alain Delon's mom and sister took pity on her. So, but that still didn't stop her from trying to get somewhere, you know, some stature. It, it, instead of acting, maybe maybe by singing, mm-hmm. which some people said she could not do. <laughs> hey, and you know what? We'll fucking get to but that. Some people. No, some people. Now, as far as how Nico started her singing career, the track, of course, runs through the movies. Shortly after the birth of her son, Nico traveled to Ibiza to prep for a... <laughs> I'm saying it right. Yeah, to I know, pre- but... Right? It's, Ibiza? Yeah, it's just... It, it's so, are you making fun? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just... I love the Spanish accent. I really do. Okay. No, you can, you can have it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Spanish wife. <laughs> Nico traveled to Ibiza to prep for a part in a movie called Striptease, which had a theme written by famed French pervert Serge Gainsbourg. (laughs) And since it had already been suggested to Nico by a lover that she should try singing, she recorded a demo of the Striptease theme. Unfortunately, her voice was deemed too deep and someone else got the part. But the demo, heard here, is the first surviving recording of Nico's singing. And this was recorded in the fall of 1962, five years before The Velvet Underground and Nico was released. À chaque nuit, un autre automne s'effeuillerait bien monotone. Et tout ceci pour qui, pourquoi? Est-ce pour lui, est-ce pour toi? Yeah, that's nice. It makes me want to go to a lobby of a boutique hotel. Now, while Nico always gets hell for singing off-key, or for not being able to sing at all... Fair. Okay, uh, we'll say it's fair. It's a fair criticism. Sometimes. Okay, that's not fair. (laughs) You don't know the concept of fair. (laughs) Well, I think it's obvious from this first recording that Nico had real talent. Personally, I'll defend Nico's voice until the day I fucking die. Yes. You and we we know this. This has been a thing yes. that me and you have had in our relationship the entire time <laughs> for all five years, six years almost. Every time we go anywhere to the store, anything, <laughs> just, Nico's a good fucking singer. Why did you have to mention Nico? <laughs> I told you not to mention Nico. We just wanted to find out the price of milk. <laughs> anyway, good, good to do. And speaking of Nico's voice. 
Her mother's favorite singer when Nico was growing up was a Swedish woman named Zara Leander. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that you can hear Zara Leander in most things that Nico did. It's 1938. Mm-hmm. That's a woman. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I know that. <laughs> no, I know. It's a, but it's it's very. It's a ma- bit throaty. It's yeah. It's a very very masculine voice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and hell, you know, Nico's listening to that when she's a little kid. That's how she learns how to sing. Mm-hmm. Even though her voice itself was also, I mean, not quite as deep as mine, but it's. Pretty fucking deep. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the other thing that kind of sucked about Nico is that like the fucking making fun of her voice. We're not original in doing no, that. No, no. It started with, well, actually the Velvet Underground <laughs> themselves. Yeah, uh, they, like, are, they already did this and they kind of felt a little bad about it. Yeah. Every, like, so, but one of the members of the factory said that like poor Nico, like, you know, everyone made fun of her, but she was probably just looking for a girlfriend. Yeah. You know, somebody yeah, to be, ba- somebody to, to confide in. And then everyone's just is like, hey, Nico, fucking say clown again. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Don't do it, Nico. Don't do it. As far as other criticisms go, Nico also sometimes catches shit as being a person who simply slept her way into the rock scene. And while she did kind of, sort of do that. But that wasn't the intention, I think. I don't think it was the intention. I I think it's more that Nico was just kind of in a rock star phase in the mid to late 60s. Yeah, that's totally fine. It's like saying like Bob Dylan was in a woman phase for 60 years. I mean, it's fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, Nico's first affair with a well-known musician began in the summer of 1965 when she had a week-long affair with Bob Dylan. He's into women. (laughs) In Paris. She soon joined him in Greece, where Dylan wrote most of the material for his fourth album, Another Side of Bob Dylan. Among the songs that Dylan wrote that summer that didn't make it to vinyl was a track that Nico held on to for the next few years with an almost Gollum-like tenacity. <laughs> True. Which is odd considering how it's really, it's honestly a lesser Dylan composition. Nico claimed that Dylan wrote it about her relationship with her son, but Dylan also told folkster Joan Baez that he'd written it for Joan. <laughs> and Judy Collins, who recorded it in 1965 with some success, said Dylan explicitly wrote it for her. How convenient, Bob <laughs> Dylan. So convenient. You didn't think this was going to blow up in your face one day? <laughs> but Nico would always insist that the song was hers. And eventually, she'd get to record it for her 1967 solo album. That song is, of course, I'll Keep It With Mine. You'd search pay at any cost But how long, day can you search for what's not lost? Everybody will help you People are very kind, but if I can save you any time, come on, give it to me. I 
Right. It's not for everybody, but I like it. Yeah, I like it too. Yeah. Soon after Dylan, or perhaps before, it's hard to fucking tell, Nico began an affair with Rolling Stones co-founder Brian Jones. The band. Rolling Stones, the band. <laughs> just so everyone knows. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Brian Jones, of course, was just four years away from being kicked out of his own band before he drowned in a swimming pool. <laughs> None of those are directly related. <laughs> or are they? But through Brian Jones, Nico met Andrew Oldham the manager and producer of the Rolling Stones. And Oldham was just about to launch his own label called Immediate Records. Oldham recognized that Nico not only had a unique voice, but was also just a stunning human being to behold. So he told her that he'd be happy to release a Nico single as one of his first records. Now, Nico naturally thought that the perfect song for her to sing would be Dylan's I'll Keep It With Mine. But recording it turned out to be an unexpected hassle. So according to Nico, Bob Dylan didn't like women singing, <laughs> oh, which we know that's not true. We know that's not true. <laughs> but she says this because he didn't show much interest in her singing other than why don't you go sing somewhere else? <laughs> like anywhere but here with me. Stop singing along when I'm trying, you know, just you're ruining it for me. Yeah. You know, but Nico was adamant about singing the song that he wrote for her. So she pleaded with him for a while until he finally agreed to record a solo on piano for her after his regular recording session. So she went to the recording studio and was forced to wait with the bands and manager's girlfriends on the couch for hours until Bob and the other guys, you know, worked on their thing. And then finally, oh, their little thing, by the way, is the whole, like, you know, Bob Dylan. This this is a Highway 61 revisited. (laughs) It's just, it's the beginnings of that. It's it's him working within a group that will later be the band. So, you know, Nico's just like, uh, Bob <laughs> tapping at her watch. He's like, I'm busy. I'm busy right now. But so finally, by the end of that whole session, Bob Dylan was drunk. Yes, okay. <laughs> but he did as he promised, and he recorded her song on piano in one take. Then at the piano, Bob Dylan, you know, he's messing around, still a little drunk. He starts playing something else. And he tells Nico, like, look, check this out. I've been working on this. And Nico, already a little bit impatient, <laughs> said, yeah, I I guess it's nice, but it's not as good as my song. (laughs) But your song, that's okay, too. That's okay. And his song was this. Yeah. I know! (laughs) Once upon a time, you dressed so fine Do the bumps a dime in your prime Then you I mean, we don't have to listen to too much for you. Know that's like a Rolling Stone. But I like that song. We could have kept going. Yeah, of course. I like. We like that. It's like a Rolling Stone. Of course, everyone likes that song. <laughs> oh, it's- I didn't know that. That was so obvious. <laughs> It's one of the greatest rock songs of all time. And she's like, yeah, but it's not as good as my song. <laughs> it's Different okay. Stuff. It's fine. <laughs> Now, Andrew Oldham thought that Nico's demo of I'll Keep It With Mine was too downbeat to be an effective single. So he gave her two other songs to sing. The first, called The Last Mile, was actually produced and played by Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin. And it featured Brian Jones on guitar. But honestly, it's not the best out of the two. That honor belongs to the A-side, a song written by Canadian treasure Gordon Lightfoot. And while I'm not saying is extremely dated... It still shows Nico's potential. I'm not saying that I love you. I'm not saying that I care if you love me. I'm not saying that I care. I'm not saying I'd be there. 
dated, but it's still a good voice. Yeah, it's a nice song. Yeah, you know that came out in 1965. Yes. Predictably, though, Nico's single went nowhere. So she traveled to America in November of 1965 in search of work. There, she hooked back up with Brian Jones. And Jones, probably through Barbara Rubin, brought Nico to Andy Warhol's factory in New York City. You're back in the scene! <laughs> See, Nico had briefly met Andy Warhol and whip man Gerard Malanga in Paris right around the time she met Dylan. No one's ever going to let me forget the fact that I bought a whip in, a, <laughs> in an umbrella store. Oh, you carried it around for years. No, actually, no. It was like six months, to be honest. It felt like years. <laughs> And Andy, like everyone who ever met Nico, he was struck by the overall package. Now, Nico actually came to the factory at just the right time, because when she arrived, Paul Morrissey was in need of someone just her type. Paul called her the most beautiful creature that ever walked this earth. So I think he had a bit of a crush I, Everyone on her. had a bit of a crush yes. on Nico. And he was also seeing dollar signs, of yeah, course. Of you know, He's like, at least she'll make this group of freaks look better. <laughs> That's Paul's thinking. See, so when the Velvet Underground threw in with Andy Warhol in late 1965, it was under the impression that Andy would be their manager. But Andy ended up being more of a consultant and a mentor and never really managed anything practical. The dirty work of the managing was actually done by Andy's right-hand man, Paul Morrissey. And Paul had decided that Lou Reed just wouldn't work as a front man because, in Paul's opinion, Lou had no charisma. And he wanted to make sure Lou was close enough to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, when uh, Soons, when Howard Soons interviewed Paul Morrissey for uh, the Lou Reed biography, I think he, Paul Morrissey asked him, like, what are you going to call it, the most hateful bitch that ever lived? But, <laughs> yeah. Like, they fucking, man, Paul Morrissey came to fucking despise Lou Reed. I'll get in line. <laughs> but when this gigantic, beautiful blonde with a singing background showed up at the factory, Paul Morrissey and Andy Warhol had somewhat of a eureka moment. And they asked Nico if she'd be interested in joining the Velvets. And really, I think this is the biggest misconception there is about Nico. From how I'd always heard people talk about her, I thought she was just kind of a model whose only pedigree was an affair with Bob Dylan that produced a song that's fine at best. But when Paul and Andy had the idea to have Nico front the Velvet Underground, she was far beyond anyone else yeah. in the band when mm -hmm. it came to what kind of progress they'd made in the music industry. Yeah, she was the get. Yeah. She, yeah, she she could draw, like, she's like the woman from the Fellini movie. Yeah, and she, yeah, she was the, that girl from La Dolce Vita. Yeah. Uh, and she also, she had worked with Jimmy Page. She knew Brian Jones. Well, back then, Jimmy Page was like an intern <laughs> at that point. Remember that. But Brian Jones and Andrew Oldham and, and all those people. Yeah. yeah. They're huge. But, of course, Lou Reed did not like the suggestion that he might be replaced with a stranger in his own band one bit. Eventually, though, Lou Reed came around to a compromise after Andy coaxed him into it. He did, because he knew he had to accept the terms if he wanted to get the band to the next level, obviously under Andy Warhol's umbrella. Uh, plus, Lou and Nico actually hit it off mm -hmm. really well. They had an affair. <laughs> they, they, I mean, they were together-ish, I yeah. guess you could say, for a little while there. Just very, very brief time. Like a month or two. Yes, but John said that Lou actually did fall in love with her for that short time. Mm-hmm. Well, the compromise that they reached is that Nico would be let into the band to sing a few songs, but not all of them. And to save Lou's ego, the band would be billed as The Velvet Underground and Nico. And with that, the lineup that would record the band's debut album was completed. 
So now that the Velvet Underground were under Andy's wing, Warhol decided to unleash the band as a part of a larger artistic statement when they were booked to play the annual dinner for the New York Society for Clinical Psychiatry. (laughs) Now, this is one of the most famous gigs of the 1960s, and with good reason. Warhol was originally asked to just give a speech to a bunch of stuffy psychiatrists and tuxedos and their ball gown adorned wives, all while they ate a simple roast beef dinner. Just to talk. That's it. That's all they want, Andy. But Andy countered with an offer to show some films and stage what was known as back then, very goofily, as a happening. How else would you describe it? It's It's happening. (laughs) It's a happening, man. And the New York Society for Clinical Psychiatry agreed to this without really knowing what a happening entailed. Okay. All you need for a happening is just just let it happen, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's all happening <laughs> at Delmonico's Hotel. <laughs> so, okay, so there's about 300 psychiatrists. They're all sitting at their banquet tables with their napkins tucked in and while the <laughs> Velvet Underground is playing on stage in front of a screen that played a film of a man tied to a chair being tortured. <laughs> <laughs> then Lou Reed goes up to the mic and is like, that song was called Heroin. Now, this next one, Venus and Furs. Oh, I see you, Freudians. Yes, walking out in the back. This one is especially for you guys. Hit it! All right. No, I don't know. He, he, no, there was no crowd work. Okay, he didn't do crowd work. Tiny, tiny, <laughs> tiny boots of lava. Can't get it out of the gutter, can we, huh? Uh, not really where you guys from. Uh, man, I can't believe that was my job for eight years. It really was. Wow, it's- New Jersey. That's... <laughs> What Did you take the bridge what or the tunnel? Exit? Yes. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so Lou Reed's not doing crowd work. He's playing. But as they're playing, Gerard is on stage in a fancy tuxedo, actually. He dressed up nice for this. But and he didn't dress up his whip, but he brought it with him. And he's dancing scandalously and writhing and twisting with his whip like he'd done, obviously, before. And Edie Sedgwick goes on stage and joins him and starts dancing and laughing maniacally. You know, they're having a great time. They're showing them what's what and then at one point Barbara Rubin and Jonas Mikas they burst into the room holding their video cameras and pointing it at random people and shining lights in their faces while asking them questions like what does her vagina feel like do you eat her out hey where are you going why are you embarrassed is your penis not big enough (laughs) all while Andy Warhol is standing there like and they wanted me to give a talk (laughs) well and that's it that was the show that's a whole show that was brilliant i just can't imagine just like, is this penis big enough what do you think about his penis where are you getting embarrassed you're a psychiatrist you're not supposed to get embarrassed it's like just so manic and weird it, it, yes the whole time i mean obviously a lot of people took it pretty well or just thought like all right that's just edie sedgwick what are you doing here I mean, there really were some psychiatrists like we made the joke but there were some who just said like fascinating <laughs> one actually called it a fascinating eruption of the id uh others they were incensed like, how dare you impugn the New York Society for Clinical Psychiatry with these nuts? They actually called them these nuts. <laughs> but, you know, this was all part of the plan. The next day, as expected, the show was covered in both the New York Times and the Herald Tribune, giving the Velvet Underground their first major press coverage. But this was also a double-edged sword. The problem with being a part of Andy Warhol's world was that you were mostly seen as an accessory. Where the Velvet Underground were using rock music as their medium to create art, Andy Warhol was using the Velvet Underground to make a larger statement. See, when the Velvets were performing as Andy's group, they were usually relegated in the press 
to being just more of Andy's freaks. And in the early days, their music was rarely described as anything but a den. Or, in the case of one psychiatrist, quote, <clears throat> a short-lived torture of cacophony. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> As far as the Warhol camp was concerned, though, the psychiatrist dinner was a huge success. So Andy continued working with the Velvets and used them as the centerpiece for his next show called Andy Warhol Uptight. Yes, uptight. You get it? You get it? Uptight. I get it. Kinda. Not really. That's the point. You got it then. You got it. Okay, so the show... I was about to pretend like I did. And then I decided, no, there's no reason to. I'm 30 fucking eight years old. I don't need to pretend to get this shit anymore. You're right there. You're right there with us. That's perfect. Okay, so this show, Uptight, it ran for a week at the Cinematheque, which was the underground theater that Jonas ran. Mm -hmm. The Velvets, they had played there before, the previous year, remember? Uh, but that was to, when they were playing, they were accompanying the film. Yeah. Now, this is an Andy Warhol multimedia production. Uptight. Yeah. So the movie screen was split so Andy could show two or three films at once while the band played like at full volume while Gerard with his whip, again with the whip, <laughs> with his whip dances as well. Now he's acting out songs as the songs are playing. He's acting them out like pantomiming them almost. So like when the band played heroin, Gerard would pretend to be shooting up with a large fake pink syringe you, you get it you get it. you see that's what i'm funny. talking about that's really funny yes yeah <laughs> or it's like it's interesting for 1966 it's like yeah oh that's cool you know yes exactly yeah. <laughs> i mean it was not like anything you can find in new york or yeah. anywhere at that time and it was a hit that's the thing the show was a hit people kept coming in droves and selling out the shows which made everyone happy everyone except nico <laughs> <laughs> because in the beginning of all this remember in the very very beginning Nico was under the impression that Paul and Andy had provided her with a backing band oh. to help launch her singing career. Ugh. She looked at them and she's like, hi, backing band. Like she seriously thought that at first until she realized later, oh, no, it's actually I'm going to join them. Yeah, she's the yeah. guest. And she was allowed to only sing three songs, like you said. And no Bob Dylan songs. <laughs> no allowed. They tried it once or twice with no enthusiasm, so they dropped it very quickly from their set. So she's only singing three songs. So what does she do the rest of the set she just has to stand there just standing there and posing okay. throughout the other songs or playing the tambourine yes. which i heard she did but did it badly <laughs> how do you play the tambourine <laughs> badly I actually i could probably show you a thing or two <laughs> remember when i played the drums when yeah. we did that one song i remember you could still play the tambourine that's just but that's one motion one hand you can keep a beat with one hand we'll see <laughs> So, furthermore, Nico's uh, affair, remember her little thing with Lou, had ended after about six weeks or so. She felt that Lou had treated her badly and tried to manipulate her. Which he had. Uh, which he was trying to do, of course, and she was not having it. Remember, she's like 30 yeah. at this time. She's not going to fall for some 24-year-old who's like trying to like control her or something. Like She's like, no, I'm not going to put up with this. Mm -hmm. So at their next rehearsal, she walked in and she stood there for like a good long while in silence until she opened up her mouth and said, Does, oh God, she said, I cannot make love to Jews anymore. <laughs> Okay, well, I mean, okay let, let's just say that there is a right way and a wrong way to do things. 
<laughs> well, I think she was trying to make a joke, uh, maybe about like I don't know, but it's also like I mean you got to do it in the void. Like I can't make love to Jews anymore. <laughs> I know it does seem more villainy uh, when she does when you do it that way. Uh, I think she's trying to make a joke, and it's a very bad one, and it just falls flat. Yeah, and it's awful, and, and, cool. and no one no one is appreciating this at all. Well, I think it just like everyone looks at her and go, "What did you just say?" I know, <laughs> and little do we know that maybe they. They had a weird German Jewish thing going on. Maybe, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. Nico wasn't a Nazi. We know no, that much. No. But I think she was trying to maybe make a joke about how everyone thought she was a Nazi, but she wasn't really. Uh, I don't know. It was, it's just, that's way too deep for her <laughs> to do. I don't know. Nico was a deep part. I mean, no, you listen I'm, to I'm the, the song she wrote out for Marble Index are, are very deep. I'm not talking about her depth. I mean, I mean as far as how deep a joke could go oh, and for okay. her to <laughs> execute that flawlessly yeah, is almost an impossibility. All right. <laughs> All right, that's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so following the success of the uptight run, the Velvets and Andy briefly took the show on the road to universities like Rutgers and the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Although after the latter show, Warhol's crew ran into police trouble, like so many bands before and so many bands after. Yeah. Basically, their bus broke down outside of a gas station near Toledo. And when 13 Andy Warhol weirdos piled out of the van, the gas station attendant immediately called the cops. Next thing they knew, they were surrounded by state police asking them, who's in charge here? (laughs) So they sent out their most normal looking person, Sterling Morrison, to see if he could try and calm down the situation. In true 60s fashion... The police believed the Velvets to be a dangerous element, unwelcome in their community, and therefore told the entire crew to be across the Ohio state line by noon the next day. Yeah, they had to stay like in a motel room. And the the rule was with the motel clerk was like girls in one room and boys in the other. <laughs> because, but which was really funny because Andy Warhol and all of them were just like, honey, we're all gay. <laughs> we don't, it doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> so once they got back to New York, the Queens discotheque was just about to open with the Velvets as the house band, which was what had brought Warhol and the Velvets together in the first place. But at the last minute, the Velvets were replaced by the Young Rascals. And the Young Rascals, like, they're about as diametrically opposed to the Velvet Underground as a rock band could be. But when it comes to both vibe and lyrical content, I know most, I didn't really know, like, oh, the Young Rascals, that didn't immediately bring up a song to mind. But the, the song that they're known for, you know this fucking song. Especially if you've seen any fucking major motion picture between 1989 and 1997. Okay, yes, I have. <laughs> Let's see. One, two, three. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. yeah. That's the Young Rascals. Yeah, that, yeah. That's the Young Rascals. Yeah. Good. Yeah, it's, it's fucking look, it's look who's talking music. Yes. It's not good. Oh, really? I, I really like that movie. It's Amy Heckerlin. I mean, it's great. It's great stuff. Okay, sure. And, I mean, the song, I mean, yeah, the song's fine. Yeah, the song's, the song's fine, but it's like, it's that's such a switch between like, oh no, we're going to have this really cool band come out and we're going to play, they're going to sing songs about heroin and going and getting speed in Union Square and there's going to be this I know, weird they only blonde. have five songs right now. <laughs> they got five or six, yeah, five yeah, or six. Yeah, a couple now, covers. They, yeah, I think they got like six or seven at this point. They're getting there. They have like a couple mm-hmm. of songs to go still. But not even the Young Rascals could keep Andy's Queen's disco alive. 
because the venue closed after the first night under somewhat mysterious, possibly mob-related circumstances. <laughs> that means it's definite. <laughs> Come on. So bereft of a place to play, the Warhol crew searched for a new venue and settled on a space above a Polish club on St. Mark's Place in Manhattan called Polski Dom Noorby, although everyone knew the place as the Dom. Or open stage. Either one. Yes. There, Warhol and the Velvets put together a month-long string of shows called the Exploding Plastic Inevitable. And this residency would end up being among the most important shows of the latter half of the 20th century. And they're definitely in my top 10 time travel show list. <laughs> if you give me a fucking chance, yeah. Exploding Plastic Inevitable show, it's on there, man. Yeah, yeah it's right behind the Gladiator game of 100 BC. <laughs> we got a lot to do, honey. Yeah. All right, so the Dom, or as they also called it back then, Open Stage, was this giant hall with high ceilings and a balcony at the other end of the stage where Andy would work from. He's working there like like the Oz, like Oz kind of. <laughs> like, you know, he has a whole setup involved. He has numerous projectors. He's got five slide projectors over here a whole light installation like Andy would play his films like three at a time one on each side of the of the stage and then one right in the middle uh, all projecting on the walls you know the walls that they painted white just for this occasion so he's putting on his movies all at the same time yeah and then the other projectors he's slipping gelatin slides over the lenses into different colors so the room would get bursts of pink and yellow and blue and green patterns all over the room and his movies they're in black and white so it also adds to the screen so it looks beautiful and then there's this young guy named Danny Williams who's working the lights the spotlights and the strobe lights and with this also on top there's this giant glass mirrored ball you know to, to really take in the lights and yeah, all disc, the colors disco ball, yeah. yes that is right around the corner when people are going to start catching on to that mirrored ball and start calling it a Disco ball. Yeah, you did it. You did it. All right. So then, and then, of course, as I said, they add some strobe light effect and boom, you got yourself like the boat ride scene of Willy Wonka. Yeah. It's pretty much like that. Or or that one rebirth part in 2001, Space Odyssey. Yeah. It's a lot of that. They've gone plat. You know? <laughs> all right. And all that chaos went beautifully with the... Warhol City Dancers. <laughs> yes. Now they're choreographing. All their movements are choreographed. So you're watching this interpretive S&M dance where Mary Warrenoff is like the dominatrix and Gerard is her victim as they prance around on stage in front of the band. And the band, they're all dressed in black and wearing sunglasses, mostly because they would be blind <laughs> as hell without them yeah. with all the lights and the strobe lights going on. And Nico in an all white pantsuit, just standing in the spotlight, unsure of how to use the tambourine correctly because Nico could be, as we know, infuriating. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times she irritated everyone in the band. Yeah. She was always late and took forever in the dressing room. They'd have to wait on stage while she'd light this candle for good luck. Yeah. I think it was for good. She'd be lighting this candle. It's like, oh gosh. And then and then she would like nod and it's like, okay, I'm ready. And then she would start singing on the wrong beat. <laughs> Every time. Every time. And then Nico would look at the band like, why did you, do, what, 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 what happened? No. And Lou would audibly say, we know what we're doing, Nico. <laughs> you don't fucking look at me. We're musicians. Just come in on the downbeat. Come in on the downbeat. It's like my favorite Italian yeah. restaurant. Yeah. yeah. But it's a show. <laughs> no. One, two, three. Here she comes. That's when you come in. You come in on the beat. Here she comes. Nico, Nico, Nico. <laughs> 
strobe lights everywhere. <laughs> Everyone's confused. All right. So, but the band, honestly, that was, they were just irritated a little bit by her, uh, a bit. But the band as a whole, they really got along well together for, for the most part. But as far as their music and their live performances, they were tight. Yeah. They've never been closer or more singular. I mean, they would come off stage with this unbelievable high because well, they were high, yes, <laughs> but also because they were in control of what they were doing. And I can't stress this enough. They were doing something no one else was doing at that time. Ever. And they were in control of it. And that's with Andy's name attached to the show. So they kept selling out shows and becoming the talk of the town, like celebrities like Salvador Dali was there and Jackie Kennedy uh, went to the erupting Plastic Inevitable <laughs> show. Exploding Plastic Inevitable. Uh, shit. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Exploding. And, and Jackie- Erupting Plastic Canevola was the original It was title. the original yeah. one. Yes, I, 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 I wrote it wrong. I wrote it wrong. <laughs> All right, so what Jackie Kennedy and Lou Reed were in the same room at one point, man. So weird. And Alan Ginsberg and, and Bob Rauschenberg. <laughs> Actually, his name is Robert, but I've been calling him Bob this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. It just sounds better. Anyway, so the, the whole thing was an event. So uh, more than a happening, I think. It, yeah, it was historical. So. And John Cale says this in his autobiography. This is where the collaboration between the band and Andy Warhol reached its brilliant peak and changed rock and roll forever from being a performance on stage to being like a real multimedia event. It's an experience. Yes. You know, like all the, like we always think about like the uh, light shows of the 1960s, you know, that they were always, you know, that they're just such a huge thing. And you think of it being like, oh, that's all throughout the 60s. Before Andy Warhol and the Exploding Plastic Inevitable, that shit didn't exist. At all, right. it was just a band on stage playing, and this right. is this is a, a groundbreaking performance. Not just for, and that's not just for the visuals that Andy Warhol provided. It's also for the music that the Velvet Underground are playing the entire time. And it's all, and there's also just so many like funny moments of, like Mary Warnoff, who's like Mary Warnoff is tough as fuck, like T U F F. Yes, tough. she is. <laughs> and you know, and by this point, like Edie Sedgwick had already she'd left the factory. Yes, she, well, she she would leave and come back again, but she pretty much left for for good at, around this point. Yes. Yeah, and she was replaced by Ingrid Superstar, who was not Edie Sedgwick was a, a pretty intelligent human being. From what people like Mary Warnoff said, like Ingrid Superstar was not the brightest of bulbs but but the sweetest of <laughs> bulbs i guess yeah, you could say yeah yeah but you know it's gerard and mary they're dancing together on stage and ingrid superstars trying to dance next to them and mary born up just like get the fuck out of here get out of here you're <laughs> fucking it up you're fucking up we're doing our thing we're trying to do the whip thing you're getting out of here you skull fucker she kept calling her you skull fucker get out of what here what does that even mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's also like fucking Lou Reed almost electrocuted himself during the show, almost died by yeah. electrocution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember uh, Mo Tucker's drums were stolen. Yeah. They were just stolen. So she had to get some garbage pails yeah. and just work with that while garbage would fall out of it. That's all part of the show, man. Yeah. It's all like, that's all you do. You, you just go along with it. It's happening. <laughs> <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code WELCOME to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code WELCOME at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code WELCOME. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. But at the same time that the Velvets were playing the month-long string of shows at the Dom, they were also starting the recording of not just one of history's greatest debuts, but one of the most influential albums of all time. Partly funded by profits from the exploding plastic inevitable shows, which totaled about 700 bucks, the Velvets got booked into New York's Scepter Studios, guided by a Columbia Records sales executive named Norman Dolph. Who's like 22 at the time. Yeah. He's not like a like an executive like you think. Like he's also another kid, or 22-year-old, not a kid. Yeah. But, but he's also another young guy who's like, baby, we have something? Yeah. And when I say like sales executive, he's like selling the vinyl that the records are printed <laughs> yes, on. Yes, like- no, he has no corner <laughs> office. No, no, no. Well, the plan was for Dolph to book the studio, help cover the rest of the studio costs, and contribute to the production as much as he could, given his limited skills behind the knobs. Then, once the album was done, Dolph would use his connections at Columbia to get the band signed. Now, concerning the production, it famously says on the tin that this album, The Velvet Underground and Nico, was produced by Andy Warhol, but... Just as it was with the managing bit, Andy was producer in name only, at least when it came to the technical side. But that's not to say that Andy's contributions weren't important, even essential. He made sure that the Velvet Underground stayed as true to their live sound as they could possibly get. And he also made sure that they kept in all the dirty words, as Andy Warhol put it, when it came to the drug use. Basically, Andy wanted the Velvets to sound like they did when they played The Factory. He wanted them to be raw and crude, just like Andy's underground movies were. Using his clout, Andy also acted as an umbrella for the band to let them be themselves without any outside meddling. Yeah, I mean, it was it was his investment, yeah. which is why he put his name on it, which I think Lou quietly resented because for years, people would think it was Andy Warhol's band. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, Andy Warhol's band as like as they thought he was the lead guitarist in the band. <laughs> that's what I'm like. Like he was Jared Leto or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. And, and, that, and that's like Andy's biggest contribution, partly in the studio, is that, you know, Andy said everything was great. And it's great. It's wonderful. wonderful. And so like when they were doing this weird shit in the studio like someone would ask like Andy like what do you think about that and he go it's great so or, or you know, my favorite one is like what do you think I think it's great then it's great <laughs> that's it that's it that's awesome yeah. so and, when, and it works yeah so when they're you know doing Black Angel's death song or they're recording European Sun you know and it's going on for you know 13 minutes he's like yeah keep doing that that's exactly <laughs> what you'd be doing and so there was no meddling at all it's just fucking raw And so, in keeping with Andy's wishes, the Velvets played as loud as possible on every track, blowing out and distorting songs with not just volume, but also lower tunings that created even more bottom end. Most songs were tuned a full step down, but on others, all the guitar strings were tuned to the same note to get an uncanny tone. This is just as Lou Reed had done with his Pickwick single, the Ostrich, and just as John Cale had been doing with his avant-garde work. John Cale also brought his avant-garde background to the forefront, keeping the droning screech of his viola learned during his days with Lamont Young, and he used it as both an anchor 
and an engine for Lou Reed's heroin. my life <laughs> because a man I to my vein needs to a center in my head and then I'm better off than dead a gym gym i don't know but i want to go to one that well, song i don't like i don't tune out anymore when i hear that i i listen to it from beginning to end because yeah. i know about this exactly only because of that like if, if that's one of the most fun things about doing the series for me especially i'm the exact same way like where, where it's like i had never really paid much attention specifically to john kale in that song. You always listen to Lou Reed, mm-hmm. but if you listen to that song and like follow John Cale throughout and like how it's just this constant drone that just like is in the background and it just starts fucking up so hard and like getting so screechy. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a revelation. Yeah. Some, no one had ever done that before. John Cale also took experimental cues from other avant-garde artists like John Cage by laying a chain of paper clips across the strings of his piano during what might be the album's best song. The paperclip technique created an unsettling bedrock for this track, which melts perfectly with Nico's doubled-up vocals, Sterling Morrison's sideways hard-drug psychedelic guitar, and Lou Reed's rubbery s and <laughs> ostrich-tuned fucking whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whatever. This was Andy Warhol's favorite Velvet Underground song because it was all about who else but the various characters who populated his factory. That song was, of course, All Tomorrow's Parties. And what costume shall the poor wear To all tomorrow's parties Around. 
Out of that song. Yeah, I agree. And the band didn't hold back on the drug talk either. In addition to I'm Waiting for the Man and Heroin, they also recorded a song about scoring drugs in Union Square, which starred such classic Lou Reed characters as Teenage Mary, Margarita Passion, Seasick Sarah, and Beardless Harry. <laughs> what makes this song all the more impressive is that it's made up of only two chords. And for that matter, heroin is also just two chords. This song's a little bit different because it's one chord for most of the song and then for a moment it switches to a second one and it goes right back to the first one. <laughs> and it was actually written by Lou Reed in a cab on the way to a Cafe Bazaar gig because they were short of material that night. How many songs has he written in a cab? <laughs> it's in a movie. <laughs> That's right. Get crazy. <laughs> Coming soon. Coming soon. And that song of course was Run Run Run. Teenage Bear Said on the day I saw my soul must be saved. Gonna take a walk down Union Square. You never know where you're gonna find there. You gotta run, 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 run. Take the jacket too. Run, 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 run. Jim's a dead for you. Hey, what you do? Margarita Passion, I had to get her fixed. She wasn't well, she was getting sick. Went to sell her soul, she wasn't high. Didn't know, think she could buy it. She would run, 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 take the jacket too. Run, 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 gypsy death in you. Tell you what to do. I don't know why I can't get over that, that it's just one chord and then it just, for like three seconds, switches to a second chord in the chorus and then just right back to dun 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 It makes perfect sense. It's so good. Well, it's yeah. the run, run, run. It's just like, it's the single-mindedness of scoring drugs. You get one <laughs> thing on the mind. You get the drugs. Just things one change. chord's enough, guys. <laughs> things change for a second and then it's right back to get looking for drugs again. John Cale said that's a song that they usually opened with on their sets. It's a great opener. Yeah. Now, this was only the first of the three sessions that would eventually make up this album, ultimately titled The Velvet Underground and Nico. But even with the few songs they had, they still felt that this was something that people would want. But when they sent the acetate to Columbia Records, they only got back a terse note that said, There is no way in the world any sane person would buy or want to listen to or put anything behind this record. Oh. Jokes on them. We don't want a same person to listen to us. <laughs> Unfazed, Warhol and Paul Morrissey moved on from the rejection at CBS and took the record to MGM. But MGM was based in California. But this seemed like a gift because Andy wanted to bring the exploding plastic inevitable show, Velvet Underground and all, to the West Coast anyway. But as it sometimes goes, the Velvet Underground's trip to California seemed to be cursed. And it was the beginning of the end of their relationship with Andy Warhol. 
Yeah, so MGM offered them that contract because of a few things. Uh, Nico's uh, cover girl looks, mm-hmm. Andy Warhol's fame or infamy, <laughs> and, and Andy also agreeing to design the cover of, of their record. Yeah. And, of course, it was also rock and roll, which was very popular at that time. So the whole band, the Velvet Underground, they flew to California, and on May 2nd, 1966, they all pulled out their ballpoint pens <laughs> to put their... Oh, hold on, hold on, wait, 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 wait. Lou has a problem with something. <laughs> Wait, yes, of course, yes. Lou, can you can you tell us what you would need? I want to make an amendment. <laughs> he wanted to make an amendment to the contract, okay? You see, when Andy first started managing this band back in late December, they agreed that all the money that the band would make would go into Andy's company called Warville, and Andy and Paul would keep 25% of that money and then pay it out to the band. So mm. they get the money, they collect their, their part, and then they give the rest out. Lou begrudgingly went along with it back then, but now when it comes to a recording contract, that's different. Probably because his dad was an accountant, or the fact that Lou had worked at Pickwick, so he kind of understands these things a little bit. And also, he's suspicious by nature. Yeah. So, while Andy Warhol over there is like standing, trying to keep his composure, (laughs) while Lou rants about not signing until they change the terms where the band gets paid the money first, and then they give out their fee to Warville. It's just, the whole thing is awkward. Yeah. It's one of those awkward moments. It's a very awkward standoff. So yeah, Warhol's like, okay, just make the amendment. And they signed it. But after that, things weren't really the same with Lou and Andy. No. You know, it kind of hurt Andy that Lou would do that. Because remember, Andy Warhol is a famous painter. <laughs> you know, he has works up in museums and galleries. And now he's in a major recording studio office signing contracts for a band he's managing. He doesn't know what he's doing. He thought this was all in good faith. Like, oh, I I thought we just we, we like each other, so I think isn't it fine? Yeah, isn't it? Uh, I thought this was going to be a lot <laughs> more chill. So than it, it is. I thought it would be a lot more fun. I'm sorry, Lou. It's weird between them now. It's very. It's yeah. It's awkward. It, there's a stink in the room now. Yes, but now they're in California, mm-hmm. and it's time to do the show. Remember, they got booked for these shows. Yeah. They got booked for like three weeks of shows. So Nico drives them, yes, she drives them to the venue because she's the only one with a license willing to drive a large van. But she's a crazy driver, <laughs> like David Johansson and Scrooge. Yeah. You know. So Mo Tucker said she had to hold on for dear life while Nico steered down the winding roads of Los Angeles. The fucking Hollywood Hills. It's dangerous, <laughs> man. Driving, and when when they got to the venue, she hit a parking sign and said, "This is a good place to park." All right, we've arrived. I'm sorry. It's just it's like they want to be a Saturday morning cartoon, you know. Anyway, so okay, so their first night right at the show, they're Uh at the trip, and they come out in their sunglasses while the light show swirls around them. Gerard and Mary, of course, remember they're dancing. They're tangled up in a whip dance, and plenty of people really enjoyed it. But they also had their Detractors, of course, mm-hmm. like David Crosby saying their multimedia show was like eating banana nut Brillo pad uh. and share. I know. It's like, is that a bad thing? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. No, you man. LA people in your food. All right. All right. And, and Cher was quoted as saying right before she left early while Sonny was like, all right, guys, I'm staying behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cher said, it will replace nothing except maybe suicide and then flipped her hair a little. Jesus Christ. I know. <laughs> 
<laughs> the Velvet Underground were like, thank you. <laughs> so really, it was a really lukewarm show. Yeah. It was not what they were expecting. And by the second show, it was practically empty. The novelty of the show didn't pick up in L.A. I mean, this was a huge disappointment. And, and it's just getting worse because on the third night, the trip closed because of tax reasons. So they just kind of hung around for a week for the owners to sort it out, which they never did. And it stayed closed forever. Mm-hmm. So the Velvets, they're in a quandary. You know, they can end their misery and go back home to New York City. But then that would mean forfeiting like the money that they were getting paid by the venue. You see, musicians union rules state that the band can't be paid their entire fee unless they stay there until the last date of their tour. Yep. So they're just going to hang out a little bit and maybe have some motel sex and stuff <laughs> and, and go to the trap and have yeah. fun and, and, and do things, yeah. although they don't quite fit in. They do not fit in. I mean, they were a little bit down about it at first, but what Mary Warnoff said, uh, she said, uh, what was it? She said, it's hard to feel down when you're full of so many fucking amphetamines. Yeah. So, you know, we just kept on trucking. You yeah. know? <laughs> now, opening for the Velvets on at least one of these shows at the trip was Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention. And while you might think that these two groups would find common ground because they were both making experimental music, they actually fucking hated each other. <laughs> oh, so you're so experimental? <laughs> Are you experimental in G or E? I can be experimental from E to G. <laughs> oh, they did not like each other. They fucking hated each other. <laughs> See, Zappa was almost evangelical in being anti-drug. And if we're telling truths here, the Velvets were at least half junkies who were somewhat evangelical themselves about how awesome heroin and speed was. <laughs> but even outside of their conflict with Zappa, the Velvets didn't necessarily vibe with the mid-60s California attitude. They thought that the hippie scene, based almost completely on the West Coast in 1966, was full of shit. And the hippies, in turn, didn't really get the Velvet Underground. Lou Reed was quoted as saying that the hippies thought that acid was going to solve everything. And to this statement, Reed said, Bullshit! You people are fucked, that's not the way it is, and you're kidding yourselves. Did they listen? (laughs) We'll see. No, but Reed was right. As exploding. Oh, God. Oh, you, you had to. I'm sorry. I had to. I had to. <laughs> As exploding plastic inevitable dancer Mary Warnoff put it, the hippies were on acid and the velvets were on speed. One spoke slowly about nothing, while the other spoke in rapid machine gun fire about books and movies and art. The hippies were homophobic instead of homosexual, sexually indiscriminate instead of sexually tense, and they ate bread they baked themselves instead of eating nothing. <laughs> okay, what's the <laughs> argument again? They're very, they're diametrically opposed. Yes, I know this. And what's wrong with that? <laughs> well, I mean, basically what she's saying is that, you know, it's like it was with the Stooges a couple of years later. The Velvets were the counterculture to the counterculture. That's right, yeah. But while things didn't go the Velvets way at the trip, these shows in Los Angeles produced another booking in the world epicenter of peace and love during the mid to late 60s. San Francisco. So word about the Velvets had gotten around to an up-and-coming promoter who decided for some reason that they'd be perfect for a San Francisco show. And that promoter was the legendary Bill Graham. Lou called Bill Graham an asshole promoter he wouldn't shit on. So that's the beginning. And also Bill Graham wasn't just a promoter, actually. He was just, I think he just bought 
the Fillmore. Yeah. So he was now a venue owner as well. Yeah. This and is, promoter. He's wearing lots of hats. Yeah. One of the most uh, one of the legendary figures in rock music. Yes. Yes. Uh, so Bill Graham, you know, having heard about Andy Warhol and and EPI and Velvet Underground, Hoopla, all that stuff, he begged the band to come to San Francisco and play at his venue. As I said, the legendary Fillmore with Jefferson Airplane and the Mothers of Invention opening for them. <laughs> it's like you again. <laughs> You're following us everywhere. <laughs> And Frank Zeb was like, gotta love it, baby. So, and so as soon as the Velvet Underground got to the capital of what we call Hippie Town, mm-hmm. it was obvious it was gonna be rough. I mean, they, the Velvet Underground, yes, they did all right as far as the show went. They did okay. It was really like dealing with Bill Graham that was the biggest issue. <laughs> yes, because Bill Graham is legendary. Actually, even back then, he thought he should be treated as legendary. Yeah. He had that kind of ego. And the Velvet Underground, they didn't give him that kind of respect that he was expecting. They were young punks. I mean, like, what what was he What was he thinking? <laughs> honestly, Bill, honestly, it's Lou Reed. Come on. So they're there, and Paul Morrissey's there. He's peeling a goddamn tangerine in front of Bill Graham and letting the peels just fall to the floor at his venue while telling Bill Graham, like, that heroin is better for musicians than they should, you know, he's just, like, kind of antagonizing yeah, him for like, fun. He's like, they, they do better on heroin than LSD. And Bill's, like, staring at the peels on the ground, <laughs> just, just red-eyed, like, yeah. insanely red-eyed, just saying, like, the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and Paul's saying, yeah, it might actually even be healthy. <laughs> it's really, he's really messy with it. And yeah. Bill Graham got so pissed because it's easy to get him real, real riled up. He's like, you disgusting germs from New York. And then he just walked out of the dressing room. He's like, I hope you fuckers bomb. <laughs> Slam the door. <laughs> you see, the thing is, Bill Graham is a New Yorker. Actually, yeah. he's a German uh, adopted, raised in New York City. So hating New York a New Yorker hating New Yorkers is what we do. <laughs> yeah. As much as we hate other people, we don't hate anyone as much as we hate each other. Who are we hating? <laughs> what is this going on? What's going on? Yeah, yes, it's treating mostly people in-house. like dirt and being miserable is every New Yorker's God-given right. That's right. Queens, baby. <laughs> so, and also Bill Graham is a lifelong salsa music fan. He doesn't know about this stuff. He even admits to himself. He's like, I don't know about this. I mean, I I know it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so at the end of the Velvet Underground set, the band, everyone, they've just put their instruments against the amplifiers to let the feedback still drone on. And then John got on the drums and he started like playing wildly. Like they're just like, you know, fuck this mess. Let's just have fun with this. And it was all chaos and, and really good times until a cymbal accidentally hit Lou, which left them like covered in blood. Like that one scene in Twister in, in the drive-in movie theater yeah. where they're playing the, the shiny and, and yeah. the hubcap. It's almost like that. He's like covered in blood. So they grab Lou and they brought him backstage. Like, you know, get him a towel, like, you know, cover it up. And in comes Bill Graham, pissed off as hell. He's like, you owe me 15 more minutes of this crap. And, he, and the band said, hey, Lou's head is bleeding right now. And Bill Graham's like, shit, I don't have insurance. Okay, all right, all right. I swear to God, you New York heroin junkies can go to hell. Oh, yes. And the Velvet Underground were like, well, your light show sucks compared to ours. And I apologize to Alan Arkish. Alan Arkish hey, was, he was he, out east. He, 
was the Phil, he was Phil Maurice. He was running the light show there, yeah. but uh, apparently it sucked on the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's what a lot of people. That's what, especially I think Sterling Morrison said, is that you know Bill Graham and the light show out in the Fillmore West that became so famous, he fucking stole the entire act from the exploding plastic inevitable. That's what's been told. That's what's been said. Said, I, I, told, I, I, said. I, yeah, I can't. We can't say for certain yes. on that, but that's that's what's been claimed. I did find an article, like a review of the show on newspapers.com. Uh-huh. I have my own subscription, and so I saw one. And at the end, the last sentence said, "Like the light show that they used for this exploding plastic inevitable is um, going to continue to be used for more dances by Bill Graham." So mm-hmm. it's almost. It kind of seems yeah. like at least he took a couple notes. He took a lot of notes. Yes. Also, Jim Morrison being at the L.A. one yep. might have taken a couple notes of Gerard Malanga. Yeah. That's what some people are saying because of his like scorpion dance or something, <laughs> which, you know, it could be, could not be. I don't know. I mean, Jim Morrison was he was definitely in the crowd. Yeah. He was a college student, young guys. He, 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 he might have. He might have. And, I mean, he and, was. A, you know, he, why the hell not? He was a writer, and you know, Jim Morrison was very good at writhing, and you know, Gerard Malanga was the fucking writhing king. <laughs> so it's very possible. Yeah. Very, very possible. Now, it was lukewarm of a reception that the band got from the audience. The review in the San Francisco Chronicle was much worse, partly because the writer was in Bill Graham's pocket. Yes, I told you that one. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> I found that from Bill Graham's book. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Compounded on that was the fact that this writer would become one of the most influential voices in rock music for decades to come. His name was Ralph Gleason, and he would go on to found Rolling Stone magazine about a year and a half after he saw the Velvet Underground at the Fillmore. Now, Rolling Stone would have, eventually, somewhat of a vested interest in promoting bands like Jefferson Airplane and The Grateful Dead, bands who typified the hippie scene. But when Ralph Gleason saw the Velvets before he founded Rolling Stone, he saw a band that was the exact opposite of peace and love. Ralph Gleason, a New Yorker. Yeah. You see that? New Yorkers hating New Yorkers. (laughs) It's what we do best, baby. Absolutely. I mean, the Velvets didn't prescribe to Gleason's high-minded ideal of what a rock band in 1966 should be. And his review telegraphed just how out of touch Rolling Stone would be concerning underground music throughout most of their reign as the number one music magazine in America. Okay. I, I can't agree completely. Not completely. I think it did start out. I think Ralph Gleason did some great things. He did. No. Absolutely. Rolling and, Stone and was good a, sometimes. He is a yeah a ch- hero to be championed for a lot of the things he's done. Yes. But if you wanted underground music, you went to fucking Cream. You didn't go to Rolling Stone. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you just fansplain something to me? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say I fansplained some. I'm just, that's my <laughs> argument. You you put an argument at me that he has to be respected. My argument back is that Rolling Rolling Stone didn't know what the fuck was going on when it came to the underground, usually. Okay, all right. Yeah. See, Gleason, as you said, was a New York native. And according to Sterling Morrison, Gleason thought that the Velvets were the urban evil of New York, who'd come to the West Coast to corrupt the simple beauty of California music. You know, like fucking Ralph Gleason and uh, Bill Graham, they left New York for a reason. It didn't vibe with them. You know, they, even though they grew up there, that wasn't their fucking place. It's just like, you know, I'm never going back to Texas because I don't vibe with fucking Texas. In this, Gleason was no different from the cops who had run the Velvets out of Ohio for being a dangerous element. And furthermore, he made a terrible fucking joke in the review by snarkily referring to the band as the Velvet Underpants. 
<laughs> Who wrote this? It's like a SpongeBob like <laughs> like episode. <laughs> Was it the crab guy? It's such and, a, it's, and SpongeBob it's, is like, no, it's my band. <laughs> well, it's just it's he just says it offhandedly, like uh, the velvet underpants. It's like not even there's not even a joke to it. It's just he's just being a snarky bitch. Now here's an excerpt from Gleason's article in the San Francisco Chronicle. America is waiting for this, one of Warhol's managers said. I wonder, I really do. If this is what America's waiting for, we're going to die of boredom because this is a celebration of the silliness of cafe society. Way out in left field, instead of far out. And it's joyless. The Velvet Underground was really pretty lame. By, con- <laughs> by contrast, the mothers of invention, who are not really the most exciting thing around town, sounded positively delightful, merely because they brought the tempos up a bit from a dirge to a funeral march. Well, actually, it's going to be more like like if Lou and the band were reading it, right? It's going to be like, <laughs> America is waiting for this! <laughs> My God! The underground was pretty lame! <laughs> By contrast, the mothers of invention. Fuck the mothers of invention. <laughs> oh, please, it called us a funeral march. <laughs> <laughs> that was really more how I, they read it. Yeah. <laughs> and I could see that. I could absolutely see that, of course. Just pacing up and down the castle, the place that we're staying at. Way out in left field instead of far out. Oh, fuck you. Far out. Who gives a shit? Because that's the other thing, too. Is that the- I want two copies. <laughs> like the Velvet Underground, like they hated that hippie patois. That fucking far out, man. We're really going to make, we're going to be have a groovy night here. I, I agree. The posturing is really lame. I agree with that. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, I don't know. It's stupid. It's fine. It's yeah. fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's fine. It's, it's, it's fine. It's whatever. And, but, you know, honestly, I can see partly where these guys are coming from. In the Velvets, people like Bill Graham and Ralph Gleason, they saw one thing, heroin. And while the West Coast scene did have faith in peace and love, they didn't have faith that the hippies could handle hard drugs. And in that, they were absolutely right. Yeah. Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, the fucking epicenter of all this shit, by 1968, it had devolved from the location of the Summer of Love to a fucking shooting gallery. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a place where Charles Manson roamed freely to learn how to manipulate rudderless youths into doing his fucking bidding. And how many times we talked about in the fucking, you know, in our punk season about how heroin fucking ruins everything. It ruins everything. It ruins everything all the time. Once heroin enters the scene, it's fucking over. Don't do heroin. I don't know why I have to fucking say it, but I feel like I need to say it one more time. Just don't. play heroin. Just play heroin, yeah. Oh, God, that's like a lame bumper sticker. I just made up a lame bumper yeah. sticker. I'm sorry. Yeah, dude, don't do heroin. Play heroin. Oh, hey, I'm all right. sorry. I'm sorry. I'm making this worse. It's just, we're the squares, man. But concerning the Velvet Underground, the California trip was officially a bomb because the Velvets couldn't have been more out of step with the prevailing counterculture. The band soon returned to New York City, but upon their return, they found they really shouldn't have left in the first place. Their spot at the Dom had been snatched up by Albert Grossman, Bob Dylan's manager. That meant that the exploding plastic inevitable couldn't continue in the same way it had before, in the only place where it was a hit. And while MGM, through their subsidiary Verve, while they tacitly agreed to release the Velvet Underground's first record someday, the Velvets were without a home. And what's insane about all this is that in this episode, Nico's bio aside, 
We've covered five months in the lifespan of the Velvet Underground. They got a lot done. Something about amphetamines. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, that's how short the good times with Andy Warhol lasted. Because by the time the Velvet Underground returned from California, by the time the whole Warhol crew returned from California, things were already starting to sour between the band and the world's most famous pop artist. In other words, the Velvets were about to embark on an extraordinarily frustrating stage of their career. And that's where we'll pick back up for part four with the Velvets' second and third albums, as well as the fractures that eventually tore the group apart. (laughs) Yes, it ends on a great note. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. The next one's The Empire Strikes Back. Yes. And some people would say that's the best one. So you're almost ready. We're almost there. We're we're, we're reeling ourselves up. Yeah, we're getting to it. Episode four is going to be coming next week. Yep, every single week. Now the episodes are coming out every week, and then we have a few weeks to a month break between the bands. Mm-hmm. And then we start with a brand new one. But right. if, if you can't wait for the next episode, if you can't wait for part four, it's sitting and waiting for you right now. It's over at our Patreon, <laughs> patreon.com slash no dogs. Uh, if you want to go there and uh, give us a little bit of support, you get something in return for the lowest level. You get notifications when the new series begins. Uh, for the second level, you get a biweekly music discussion show called New Arrival starring who? Yeah, well, me and you. Yeah, that's You and right. me. And, you, and for <laughs> the highest level, you get early access to episodes as soon as we're done with them. They are posted on the Patreon uh, so, uh, Velvet Underground Part 4 sitting there waiting for you yep. right now. Absolutely. Um, and for this episode, I got to read the books. The books that we used, uh, maybe some of them were also used on episode two, because I think I forgot to mention that. We might have. Okay. So, <laughs> 33 and a third, The Velvet Underground and Nico by Joe Harvard. Now, that's a very decent read. It's good. Nico, Life and Lies of an Icon by Richard Witz. That's my favorite Nico book by far. Uh, Warhol by Blake Gopnik. Very good. Very extensive, though. Yeah. Very extensive. And The Life and Death of Andy Warhol by Victor Bacris. So, yeah, those are just some of the books <laughs> that we're using for this whole series. Yeah, Bacris is amazing. His Lou Reed uh, biography, Transformer, is also uh, fucking fantastic. It's so good. It's a little sticky with the timelines. Sometimes this things are a little out of order. Before the internet yeah. time so it, you know it but but you know what it works out it works out yeah. it's a fa- if you're just looking for a fantastic read transformer by uh, victor brockers is fucking great mm-hmm. uh and our band this week is joe fur joe fur <laughs> j-o-e-f-u-r joe fur that's two words yeah two like, words hey joe hey joe you got a lot of fur uh, okay. on your belly or your back this is <laughs> joe fur is brilliant <laughs> And what you're doing to his name, I, or his slash her day name, you know, it's not like, right. It's UK, what he calls it, UK style bass and grime. Okay. It's really right, cool, cool shit. It's, it's very, very cool. And it's uh, instrumental, experimental, glitchy stuff. Um, you can find it at joefur.bandcamp.com. He's got a, a new EP, new five track EP uh, called Yukio EP out right now. Uh, he's also an amazing artist. Uh, you can check out his mm-hmm. art at joefur.com or at joefur.art on Instagram. But before you do any of that, listen to the music. Here's Joe Fur. <laughs> Joe Fur, not Joe Fur. Goodbye. Goodbye.